0: Well, joining me today on the Godcast is Steve N. Allen, who is a stand-up comedian, a writer, a radio guy, and is perhaps best known for his role as newscaster on the BBC2 hit show The Mashed Report. Steve, I understand, broke into comedy in 2012, and since then has become a regular performer across London and the Southeast, including gigs at the Comedy Store, downstairs at the King's Head and the Comedy Cafe. Now, when I asked uh, Steve to come on the Godcast, he said I thought uh, perhaps I'd uh, picked the wrong person. And it was another Steve Allen. But um, after a bit more research, I discovered you were the right Steve Allen, the one I was hoping to get hold of. So, Steve, a very warm welcome to the Godcast. Where in the world do we find you today?
1: You find me in glorious tier three in Gravesham in Kent.
0: Yes. Well, snap, I'm in tier three as well. Have you been in tier three for a while or?
1: Straight out of lockdown into tier three. Yeah, this it was the Kent was a weird one because it it was at the lowest. um, I think it was this area, Gravesham was in tier one before the lockdown. And then after the second lockdown, we came out in tier three, which one would possibly say meant that the lockdown didn't work. It seemed to have not made things better.
0: No, no. I was, uh, I'm quite, I quite like my football and uh, I'd heard that crowds were being allowed in and then realized I was in tier three and so it didn't apply to us. So, I still oh, haven't that's... had the joy of getting to turf more, but uh, yeah. yeah. It
1: stings more when you know other people. When you know that those people on the Isle of Wight are frolicking around a tier one, oh, it just hurts more, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: so, Steve, is, is Kent, has Kent, Kent always been home? Is it where you originate from, or how have you ended up no. there?
1: Um, I mean, I've ended up absolutely everywhere. I've lived in most places in the country. Originally, I'm from the Midlands, which I think was—it's a good area. This is why supermarkets test out their products in the Midlands. Like, it's a good place to come from and then head elsewhere. So, I was from Nottinghamshire, man, just next to Mansfield, center in Ashfield, and yeah, lived there until I went off to university, and then ended up basically living in places to work on radio. So, I've lived in. Um, like London, Essex, Swindon, uh, Crawley, Stevenage—anywhere where there's an industrial estate, so they could put a radio station on there. I moved near to wherever I was broadcasting, and that's the same reason why I moved down to Kent. I was doing some work on BBC Radio Kent, needed to move another place to live, and I thought, why not? Let's let's uh, buy on the old Costa del Gravesham. Why not?
0: Why not? So, what was your uh, what was your first break in radio then? Was it a bit of a tea boy, or or did you get a decent break?
1: No, it was a weird break. And I don't know if this would ever be a useful route for anyone into radio, but when I was at university, I'd always loved jokes. There's something, I think I'm, I I enjoyed filling in puzzles and Sudoku and stuff like that. I've got that kind of mind that just obsesses on detail too much. So I've always enjoyed the fact that jokes are effectively puzzles. The, in a sense, there is a finite number of words that we have and then therefore there's a finite possible arrangement of them. But if you get the right one, it will make people laugh. And that still bewilders me that if you get the words in the right order, somehow that elicits this weird response. So I was obsessed with jokes and it was second year at university. I started to get in touch with the radio station saying, could I try and write some jokes for you? and I this was back in the day when I'd fax them in so I'd fax in a page of jokes right. thinking like it would just be so good to get jokes on radio yeah. and one guy got in touch and said yeah if you could do this every day I'll pay you for them so really? that was my first job in radio I was wow. writing topical jokes for a breakfast show.
0: Wow that's really interesting I, I love radio and um, I've always I've always loved radio and I've, I used to do hospital radio which was great fun because I there was no producer you you had no you you know you were your own manager and I used to take my vinyl big bag of vinyl and play songs by the Cure in Depeche Mode to elderly ladies on Ward 4. And it was, I used to love it. I used to love it. Yeah.
1: Did they so, love it? I think that's the other question.
0: <laughs> probably not, no. So did you, um, so from there you got into proper presenting, did you?
1: Yeah, it was again a lucky one. I'd never really thought of presenting and then I was chasing an invoice because after writing for one radio station I thought well these are local radio stations and the guy I'm writing for won't mind I I checked with him so I could sell the same jokes to other local radio stations. So eventually I had like 26 stations across the UK, where every day I'd write some jokes fax them to them so they could read them out the next morning and i was chasing an invoice and the guy said actually you've got a pretty good voice as well maybe you should think about doing radio and then gave me some hints and tips i had to get into it and eventually i became a, a travel reader, one of those people going kind of like delays on the m25 it's all stacked up and i was doing that for a while so that was my mm-hmm. first proper job in radio
0: yeah what kind of what kind of comedians were you uh, listening to and enjoying as a young guy
1: I I always like the fact that one of my first comedians that I started to really get into and watch the back catalogue um, was not someone that anyone was into when I was growing up. Um, Groucho Marx. I watched all the films, saw all the like audio cassettes of, of various stuff that he'd done. Again, because it's that word puzzle pun type way of doing jokes. That was like the first thing that got me into comedy. It's not really what I do now, oddly enough, but I do think like a good basic training in wordplay is quite handy. So yeah, loved all the the Marx Brothers stuff. Um, And then I think Robin Williams was on TV a lot doing stand-up, like Channel 4 would put on the odd Mm -hmm. specials. And actually, I do think the thing that helped the most is my parents bought me a second-hand video recorder. And it was the noisiest, clunkiest thing ever. Chewed up a tape, kind of like a 1 in 25 chance that you were never going to see anything you'd recorded. But I could use it to record TV stuff that was Mm -hmm. on too late for me to watch. And that's how I, you know, if I saw comedy was on the TV, I'd record live at the TNC club. That was on ITV. Um, any any of the comedy specials that were on Channel 4, I'd record them, watch them the next day. And yeah, yeah that was like another good basic training in what stand-up was.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know whether it had an effect on my uh, professional career, but I, I used to love Dave Allen on I think yeah. Saturday nights and the way that he was just... Uh... I don't know if you agree, I just thought he was a bit of a craftsman, you know, he was a real artist about his work, he he just kind of, as if he, I suppose that's a skill of all good comics, That it's just as if you're in conversation, or you're just listening to a chat that's going on, Would would you agree with that Steve, or not?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, my dad used to watch Dave Allen stuff. So I remember seeing it just by being sat in the front room because there was one telly. He didn't get a choice. And yeah, it, it, like looking back now, seeing the performance ability that Dave Allen, Allen had was amazing. The fact that he was so like emotionally involved in the stories he was telling and yet still never tipped anything towards serious. Like every line would be funny, but he, he you know, he'd be doing that thing of being angry with the story that he's telling but in a way that doesn't threaten, just brings you in and makes you agree and go, yeah, it is ridiculous that they tell you to remove your teeth on the aeroplane and don't Mm -hmm. say false teeth. You know, those observations. Although it was same as um, Tommy Cooper's stuff on TV. Uh, The sketches, I never really enjoyed as much as a kid. You know, so you get the Dave Allen stand-up-y bit and then there'd be a a sketch, which would feel like one joke stretched a bit too far, acted out a bit too much. Um, But then I now realise that's kind of what I do on a on a web show that i do with a friend where we do find ourselves writing a joke and thinking we could get about five minutes out of that one joke if we film the thing so yeah totally understand why you do it
0: can you remember the first stand-up you saw mine was um and this is going back to when he was very much mainstream was my parents taking me to a end of the pier show to see jim davidson to a really packed out audience where uh jim davidson was doing his kind of uh You know, he's too risky stuff and all that kind of stuff. And uh, But he was adored. He was adored. But uh, what was your, can you remember the first stand-up you saw?
1: First live one, again, because of my northern upbringing, my Mansfield upbringing, it would have been at Skegness on a holiday. And my um, grandparents had a caravan there. So we had every holiday in Skegness. And I think the first one that I was taken to see was Ken Dodd. And because I think they thought it wouldn't be too rude, I was still really quite young at the time, maybe 13 or 14 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, So that was the first live one. And he did the classic thing of making it like a three and a half hour show, just non-stop joke, joke, jokes. And then we did that every year. So I ended up seeing who else was famous back then. Um Duncan Norvell. Yeah. Cannonball. Yeah. Cannonball live. That was great. Gary Wilmot. Um, There must have been some others as well. So it became a regular thing. It was real old school stand-up. And it wasn't until I got a bit older that I realised, you know, you can go and see comedy clubs doing alternative comedy. I mean, there was nothing in Mansfield, so I couldn't see that. But eventually I got to Nottingham where they had a comedy club there.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's all right to like all genres? I mean, you just mentioned names there, uh, Cannonball. I used to love Cannonball. I interviewed uh, Jimmy Cricket for the Godcast uh, a few weeks ago. Who is you know he's been around an awful long time. He he was talking about um, how he, how tough it must be for, for jobbing stand up comics at the minute. I mean he's he's had a wonderful career and he you know he, saying the mortgage is paid and such like. But people some comics out there find him you know what what can you do.
1: Mm. Yeah, well that's the situation I'm in. Mean, I mean I love stand-up comedy but not really been able to do it since the lockdown the first lockdown started. I mean some gigs came back, I've done some outdoor ones, I've done like a limited number indoor gigs, but it's still not that the career's back. Um but so it, yeah, it is difficult for us. In terms of liking all genres, I don't see a problem with it. I'm uh, like I know that you know some of the jokes might not uh, age well, but I think you you should be able to look deeper and analyze what's funny. Yeah. And then apply that to what you want to say so even though that old style of, of stand-up even like the for Cannonball, that old tradition of the double act i i'm not going to do that myself these days but i can still enjoy what's funny about it and actually when uh, when recently when um bobby ball passed away i was interviewed on a few places to talk about you know a comedian response to it so i did some research and watched some old clips again and there was a sketch where Cannon and Ball were both doing lines from a different sketch. Um, Bobby Ball was doing the car sketch. No, he was doing the zoo sketch, and Tommy Cannon was doing the car sketch, and the lines weren't quite meeting. And I remember thinking, that's not a million miles away from what you see Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie doing with the, uh, the hedge sketch. So actually you know just because the package looked old school the comedy had something in it and I think that was a good thing back in the day when you had to fill a series of comedy Mm. you know how are you going to get that much material out you're going to end up doing some stuff that's a bit inventive yeah same for Morecambe and Wise you know everyone Mm. thinks that's old school stuff but if you go back and watch it there are some really inventive bits in it
0: yeah and it's still funny I'm really encouraged by what you said because I mean you know I I've I from the extremes of as a kid loving Heidi high <laughs> to uh, absolutely you know my my I suppose my ultimate comic hero was Rick mail who I adored watching uh, the young ones and then bottom and then the live shows and I saw Rick mail live and and uh, you know the extremes were, were clear to see um
1: yeah just, just before about, you move uh, on from that though I was just, as a little treat back for you you should Google Rick mail on Canon and Bull if you enjoy a nice bit of a crossover, I've seen it. I've seen it. Brilliant, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, they did have some great guests on, and and uh, yeah, you know, it was a real. I was really sad when Bobby Ball passed away because he, he it was like part of my childhood had gone as well. And um, mm. yeah, Steve, just about uh, just about you as a younger guy. So um, I, I've got to ask some religious connota- uh, connotational question. Was church ever part of Steve Allen family life or not?
1: yeah it was um growing up my because my granddad was the uh like gardener and caretaker of the the church right next door to where they lived so um mum mum was religious and we were you know we I went to a primary school that would do religious assemblies all the time so Mm -hmm. I actually I like that because then you receive a good religious education Mm -hmm. which I quite think like I I think there's a fine line between anything that would be forcing you to believe and forcing you to think a certain way, I think is what I disagree with. But the information is brilliant. I mean, in terms of finding out what is in the religious religious education, it's better to do it younger than to try and do it in in an older, curious, in a different way type mindset. So, yeah, I had a religious education and religious upbringing.
0: That's good you say that because it's, fill, it's filling my jar up quite a bit because we, we were attached to a church school and, and I, I'd like to think I don't do what you said, I don't tell children what they have to believe, I, I like to think I give them options but the, also the non-church schools have, have uh, been using our services of late obviously prior to COVID because um, I think they do see the value in in religious uh, education uh, rather than indoctrination and um, it's encouraging encouraging to to see that so, so is church ever on the radar? You know, at Christmas, would it would it be on the Steve Allen radar or, or
1: he... I've I've strayed very much so. Um and I, as much as it's a cliche, I think the big change for me was when I went to university, I was a sciencey guy, did chemistry at university. And the more sciencey I got, mm-hmm. I started to feel the effect of religious versus religion versus science, which actually later on looking back, I don't think there's the need for those to be mutually exclusive concepts because they're not. On the same spectrum, like science isn't the opposite of religion. Science just stands on its stands on its own and doesn't need humans to be involved in it. Like these things that one can discover through the pursuit of information and a rigorous checking, that science doesn't doesn't have a problem, doesn't have beef with anyone because it's it's not even like I, I believe you don't need humans for all of those scientific truths to be true. It's only that we have to work to work out what they are um so yeah sadly that, that was the the wedge that then led me in a different direction um and these days no I even uh not, not at Christmas and I'm trying to think the last time I went to a church would have been someone else someone else getting christened obviously not me that would be terrible if it was me <laughs> that was quite a while ago
0: um so just going about your uh, final point on your kind of young life uh, you know quite often the comedians are the also the class clowns were you a uh, were you a class clown or were you were you a very well-behaved little boy?
1: I'm really well-behaved. And one of the things that's happened over the last few years I've had to do, I found myself doing more personality tests and stuff. You know, just checking on what what is okay about me, what isn't. It's just been a weird phase of introspection. And mm-hmm. now I understand more of why I was such a quiet child. I was really quiet. Um, So I wasn't the class clown at all. My personality type is an INTJ, so I totally understand why I wasn't wrong to be sat there being silent. That was just the way that I needed to interact with the world. However, I did, because I started to enjoy writing jokes, instead of being the loudest person in the room, um, you know, being the class clown, I learned which lessons would have which audiences. So I I remember there was one day when I had French in the morning, it's at secondary school, and then CDT, like technology in the afternoon. And I would do the same jokes I, to the people sat around me. And there was one person who was in the same class. Both, so they, they were the one person who could know that actually you've done that joke before. Like, just stop, stop telling people there's material involved. So I, I enjoyed making people laugh, but didn't enjoy the level of scrutiny that too much attention brought, mm. brought to me. And that was the biggest challenge um, dealing with broadcasting and standoff.
0: That's a skill I I mean I I think I was considered the class clown but quite often it it wasn't I wasn't deliberately trying to do it I I just seem to have something about me that seems to put my foot in it quite frequently (laughs) when did did you when did you kind of um, I suppose the question I'm gonna ask is did you have a proper job before you you went into comedy what kind of things really
1: I mean if we so at university um, all the summers because working class lad it was difficult to afford stuff I'd come back and work in the factories um, so around where I grew up, there's loads of metal factories, you know, making tins and stuff. Um, so I did that and, a, a carpet fabric, um, factory, just lifting rolls of fabric that were heavier than the EU tells you should, you should lift. That was fun. Um, but then straight out of university, I had a short job where I was working in a laboratory for a very short amount of time, um, just testing dialysis fluid. And I just, I'd, I'd wanted, by then I got too much of the bug so at university, I started writing for people. I started dabbling different sort of performance stuff. And I realized I'd rather do something that I enjoyed. I'd rather fail at doing something I enjoyed than go into a life of boredom with my own existence. Mm. I'd, I'd always enjoyed math. So I'd done the maths of working out. If you don't enjoy what you do for a living, the biggest and most important part of your life, you won't get any joy from. So no wonder you'll be, I, I, don't, I don't think you can chase joy in other parts of your life. Like if you hate your job through the years of being like 20 to 60, like the peak of your life, if you're resenting most of what your week is, you're not going to find more joy on the weekend. You're going to be the worst version of yourself, kind of snippy and miserable. Absolutely. So I gave up. Yeah. I gave up with the chemistry, thought, no, bye-bye chemistry. And um, yeah, started writing jokes for more people. Never. So I've never really had a proper job. And I do, I always love the fact that the mortgage on this place is being paid by words put in a certain order.
0: I love what you said there, because we, I mean, I totally agree with you. We, uh, we used to have a postman that was, the, you know, he seemed to just carry the great cloud with him everywhere, from every door yeah. to every door. And I, and I used to work in in retail management. And uh, I always used to say to people, if you don't like the job, just don't do it. Just go do something else, whatever. And I think that's yeah. a good idea. Did you, so when you, when you went into stand-up, was it, um, was the response instantly good or, or did you feel like you really had to work at um, um, holding a live audience?
1: Um, I really had to work at it because it's it doesn't suit my personality, but my goals require it in a sense. I enjoy doing comedy and I want to make a living out of doing comedy. I would very much be happy sitting at home, writing stuff and never seeing the light of day. You know, I'm quite a, a home type person but to make money doing it I had to get out there and you learn more by being on stage so I found it terrifying for some reason no one ever saw the terror on my face and I don't quite know how there's that disconnect the little safety buffer between the screaming that's going on inside my head like you're on stage it's all gonna go wrong and then apparently I look and sound confident on stage and that's really useful because if an audience smells the fear then they start to fear that their evening is going to go badly as well. No one really wants to see it all go terribly badly on stage. So, yeah, I'm lucky that whilst I've had to work on the inside to deal with the stage fright, no one's ever seen the effects of, you know, when it's not worked. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I it took a lot of doing. I was terrified.
0: We'll get on, we'll get on to the mass report in a minute. But um, when you've got a blank canvas, when you're, you know, preparing to start new material, is it that? Is it a blank canvas? I mean, the Mash Report is, is satirical. Do you have a genre or, or do you just let the ideas flow to begin with? How, how does your kind of approach to work come about?
1: Well, I've always enjoyed topical stuff. Like my first job writing jokes from stories in the newspapers, like one-liner jokes from a silly story. And that's what commercial radio enjoyed. So I did a lot of that. And then I've always found it, easiest to use news as the starting material so at the moment I'm doing a comedy web thing with Eric McElroy who's another comedian since the lockdown we've been doing this one reviewer called it like a daily show light or a daily a micro budget daily show so it's just topical comedy clips and us doing stuff and I've done that on stage for years and years and if a joke works well but the news story dies away I learned the art of of rewriting the joke so there's loads of bits of stand-up that are were originally about someone in the news and then the stories now gone from the zeitgeist so it's now a story about a friend that i once knew or you know it's it packed into something that looks more autobiographical mm. but it's not it's just absolutely made up because it was once about david beckham and now no one remembers it
0: a friend of mine is a i don't know if you know him he's a comedian called tony vino who's oh, uh, yeah. based in the north and he did a he did a show for us at church he's uh which i thought was a real skill because that was uh that was a real mixed bag i can tell you you know old new and in between <laughs> Um, but you know, he, was, he was, you know, as soon as he got there, he was kind of looking around the venue for little tidbits that he might be able to just work into his set. Are, are you a comic that does that, or do you like to stick to your script, as it were?
1: No, I love coming off script. Um, what I love about learning the script so well, and this is what no comedian has now thanks to lockdown, but when you're really match fit, when you're gigging most nights a week, you know your material so well that you can kind of let the mouth finish the joke while the brain's thinking of something else. And then I love that, that way you get to create these moments that never happen again, they're only in that one gig. And as an audience member, I've enjoyed it as well, where something happens where you think, we are witnessing a one-off moment. It's not pre-scripted, trimmed down, rewritten stuff. This is someone's done something, someone's reacted, and there is nothing funnier in this world than being in the moment. So that's why I never learn any heckle put downs. Someone says something, we'll just have to try and deal with it by the seat of our pants, and that'll be funnier. And I love the, love the idea of, yeah, when you walk in a room, if there's something that when the audience has got to know you, you can then just nod in that direction, do that joke, and it just brings you all together. It lets you know, this is not on telly. This is in the moment. This is real. Yeah.
0: I, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge fan of Jimmy Carr. I, I don't mind Jimmy Carr. But one of the things I do find quite impressive is he does a bit in his set, doesn't he, where he invites the heckle. You know, it's just like, come on, um, just throw something at me. Are you, are you well prepared for a heckle? or or do you not get heckled too much now?
1: I mean, actually I don't get heckled too much and I've never really understood why. Um, I mean, I do talk quickly on stage. Also, I'm six foot two with facial hair. Maybe there's some level of threat that the lizard brain perceives, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I don't like to prepare stuff because I always think there's nothing worse than someone heckling and you coming back with a prepared stock line. Mm. And if if it's not as good as the heckle, you've just lost everything. That uh, you know, you, if you're not going to engage in the battle in the moment and you're just trying to rely on previously arranged ordnance and it's not good, you should just leave the stage. So, no, I try, try and deal with things just in the moment and respond there and then.
0: Pri- prior to being a, a priest, uh, uh, you know, I was I was pursuing a stand-up career and I was doing all right, but what I couldn't quite understand is that I could do it at my set one night uh, and it would go down quite well. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm being generous at quite well. And then another night, it could absolutely die on its backside. And uh, do, you, do you find that, all, you know, I hear it, the audience is different. Do you, do you find that yourself, that, you know, some jokes land better in different places?
1: Yeah, and eventually you get a sense of learning to read the audience. But in general, I think practice and experience changes um the the highs and the lows of that so when when I first started same thing some nights nothing worked other nights it goes so well you think why am I not totally famous by now and then the more experience you get you just kind of bring those extremes down you just kind of shrink that sine wave down so you I still have gigs that go well and I have gigs that aren't as good but the the bad ones aren't as bad and maybe Mm. the good ones aren't as good I don't know but I think it's all about practice just gets rid of that variation Mm. um but yeah I mean some audiences might just not like you depends how many people in the audience as well like if you do a big gig so if you get like 400 people in a room and you do a joke and 100 of those 400 laugh it's still going to sound pretty good but if you're doing a 50 gig let's make it easier maths if you do a 40 person gig and 10 people laugh it sounds like that joke just died yeah so the same percentages will then bring you bigger highs and lows mm.
0: and what about your your uh, peer group you know I, I guess it's been really tough for some guys I mean you're you're you are well known aren't you but for some of those jobbing comics I guess it's been really tough this year
1: yeah this is the biggest like, I'm going to say it's the biggest crisis for stand-up ever because really the kind of stand-up that a lot of us do it really develops in the 80s like anything before that was different so since the 80s, there's not been anything that's been this detrimental. I also realised that the biggest crisis for stand-up comedy is not the biggest crisis in the world. You know, there are bigger fish to fry, bigger worrying things. Mm. But most of us, I know on the circuit, um, if you don't gig for a week, you take a two-week holiday, oh, you are so rusty that you don't know what you're doing anymore. So the idea that we've not been on stage since March, like any small gig that I've been doing to keep myself in it, feels so rusty even just Mm. small things like having to pay attention to the jokes and then getting to the end of the bit of material and thinking i just missed a bit out Mm. because i'm just not as match fit as we would have been Mm. um and yeah the money's i know that some gigs have been allowed to reopen but the restrictions that are on them basically mean that they can reopen but not make money which is a lot of people are doing that because we love the art more than Mm. we love the money but yeah at some point the gigs will close if they become not financially viable anymore mm. so this is yeah, a terrifying time for those of us who love love stand-up
0: i hope it gets sorted i you know I, i've got a job that's uh, you know emotionally draining at times and my escape is, is through comedy and I, I love watching stand-up love love going um so hopefully it's it, it's passed um pass soon anyway um just can we just talk about uh, the mass report a bit how did that how did that come about were you on uh, were you
1: <laughs> was it a job for the boys or were you uh, were you um, did you audition how did that come about yeah I auditioned I've never received any jobs for the boys ever this is the problem with being working class lad from Mansfield um <laughs> but yeah no one's handing stuff in your direction oh. um so I so I we go really back so always love doing topical comedy was doing this thing in London with a friend where we're in a room below a pub, we would do a topical comedy night. So we write, you know, churning around stuff, had a TV on the wall. So we managed to use that just to show headlines. Yeah, And we did that like every single week and eventually produced enough material that we both went off and did our own individual Edinburgh shows based on like the best jokes of the last year. And I've been doing that two or three years, um, three years. So I did 2011, 12 and 13. No, i did it in 14 as well and then in 2014 um i'd managed to get an agent then and because i was i was doing topical shows when this production company had this idea of turning the daily mash into a tv show um i was accepted to go and do a, an audition for it and playing the role that i do this tom the news broadcaster and i went along and they thought i got the voice right but said that my body of movement was terrible but i think i was probably just like a down or bolt upright <laughs> terrified and so I thought, oh, well, that was nice, didn't get that. But they invited me back for another audition and gave me like like half an hour's worth of this guy telling me exactly how I should sit. And I managed to not look in absolute state. The voice, I guess, was what they wanted. So I got the got the gig. We made a pilot in 2014. They showed it to various TV um, channels who all said, no, thank you, goodbye. Really? And that was it. That was the end of that. Really? God. Um So I thought that was the TV career that never happened, never mind, plowed on with doing the radio and stuff. And then in 2017, stuff had changed, like Trump had happened, Brexit happened, and the BBC started to look for another topical comedy show. And then the production company rejigged it, put it back in. And and then it was funny because they made three pilots, and we thought we stood the least chance of being made because there were bigger production companies and bigger names involved in the other shows. But the problem was they were the other two were kind of panel show formats, and there'd just been a thing in the Guardian totally dissing the BBC for over reliance on panel show formats and how it was killing comedy. So I think it just came at the right time. There was a bit of a mood shift, so they went, like, "Oh, I guess we can't pick those other two more successful shows. We'll have to pick the Mash Report." I,
0: I, you know, I do like the Mash Report. I particularly like your your the news bit. It is it's the best bit of the show. It is do you? Uh... Do you have any involvement in the writing of it, or, or is it is that somebody else's domain?
1: Those bits are all written by the Daily Mash writers, um, so I mean, you know, we get to do that pretentious arty thing of actually. Could I say you, you get to you get to affect a rewrite just because you know you can be a bit precious? But I, just, I to be honest, I don't because they're so good. And what what also happens, and I love this. I, this is what is great about doing something as pretentious as TV when you come from Mansfield. That you can get to sit there and think, oh no, my character wouldn't say it like this. My character would say it like this. So you can do it like that, and then at the end, when we're doing all the the pickups from you know any mistake or slip that's happened, you refilm it to be edited in. You always get told, oh, could you just do a a straight read of that, you know, just for reference, or whatever a way of they could you just do that. Loved what you did, Steve, but could you just do that again? And they use the one that they want. Of course yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, it's more of a performance gig than anything else.
0: And it's it's uh, filmed in front of
1: a live audience, yeah. It was before lockdown, yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you do you do you lose it sometimes? Do you, do you you know those lines are so kind of boom, aren't they? They bang on the money, and and the setting it in a, a way you portray them in a, in a, as it's a serious news report. I mean, I yeah. don't know how you,
1: how you do it. Do you, do you crack sometimes? I'm pretty good at not laughing at the lines, and um, people wonder how I can keep a straight face. And the trick is we get there at 12, we get the scripts and I read them and laugh and think they're hilarious. And then we do camera run through a couple of other rehearsals, dress rehearsal, and then go in the rooms and just practice the material. By the time I'm saying it when the live audience is in, I've heard it 15 times and I'm like, yeah, that was funny a while ago, but now, yeah, I get it. And I think that's quite good to have that, that dispassionate response to like, yeah, this is a joke, these are words. Because delivering it as if it's actually news is difficult the first time you've seen it because these words are often nonsense but then when you get into that moment of believing like my character would be thinking he is the coolest dude on tv reading news and this is serious so you say every word like i'm breaking something massively important mm. um but then I, every so often i will totally fluff a line and just not be able to recover from it um there was a, a punchline in one of them was something about something being preserved for posterity couldn't get those words out I was on like take 58 eventually and the problem was because it was halfway in the middle of the bit so if I said it then I started to smile because I was like oh got that right and the audience could see we wasted half an hour just because I couldn't say three words eventually they did that classic thing um of changing the script they just said like stored for history or something because there was no chance of me saying yeah.
0: it <laughs> that's great I love that story um so the, have we got has it been recommissioned have you got more coming
1: up we don't have any official word on that yet. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, we'd finished the last one just at the start of lockdown. It was the weirdest series because we filmed that in our front rooms rather than in front of a live audience, which just goes to show you can still do telly. And that's the thing that that helped me get involved in doing like live comedy streaming shows because I realised you can pretty much do TV from home these days. So why not? Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I've been working on that. Yeah, hopefully there'll be another one next year. We've heard We've heard various rumours, but nothing's been confirmed.
0: It's got, I think it's got a bit more legs now at myself, but you know, I'm not a commissioning (laughs) editor or anything like that. Um, just, uh, just mindful of time, Steve, just a few other bits. Have you got, have you got some gigs in the pipeline? Do you know when you're going to be back in a club?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got some coming up this weekend, uh, sorry, next weekend. So I did the first one back out of lockdown last weekend just to get back into it. I'm doing a gig down in Fleet, wherever Fleet is, um, and then another London one. So I'm slowly getting back into it, which means slowly getting over the terror of being on stage again, which comes back after a break. Uh, but, yeah, the live the live work, the audiences aren't big enough yet, but still doing it because I still love it.
0: Hmm. Do you get up north? Do you get up to, uh, you know, Frog and Bucket? or
1: uh... Sometimes. Not as often as I should do. Um, I mean, it just... The, the, it is just the the time maths of like a gig. The, they're great gigs, but there are also great gigs near where I live. And one of them is a four hour drive away and the other one's not. So you end up just performing nearer to where you live yeah, just because great, of that.
0: Honest answer. It's just, it's easier, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, it's been really great talking to you, great meeting you. And, um, you know, you, you've touched on a few things. I'll, I do like to watch these back. You talked about comedy as an art. And I think sometimes, you know, some stuffy people don't don't see comedy as an art form. Mm. I think it is. I, I I do find watching stand-ups quite difficult because I love I love examining what's going on. And um, you know I tip my hat to you. you were making a career out of it. It's a it's a road that I, I ended up not travelling, but it's one that I, I, I keep a real close eye on. And um, thanks for your time, Steve. I wish you well. I hope the gigs get uh, get more and more. And we look forward to seeing you back on uh, BBC2 hopefully next year. So, Steve, thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the Godcast. Thank you very much.